I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. Coming up, Marcella Utalara and Bruce Poulter will discuss an ongoing clinical trial testing the effectiveness of the currently illegal drug MDMA, known by some as ecstasy, in treating patients with post-traumatic stress syndrome. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. One of the hallmarks of good science is repeating experiments, making different kinds of measurements and by different kinds of researchers. This has often been the case in the study of the expansion of the universe, distances to far-flung objects in the universe and how fast they are moving away from each other have been measured in the past by observing special kinds of variable stars called Cepheids, and also by the properties of distant supernova explosions. Now, an international team of astronomers have measured the expansion of the universe using a new method that is not only independent of past measurements, but mostly independent of models and assumptions about what our universe consists of, i.e. things like normal matter, dark matter, and dark energy. This method uses what's called gravitational lensing, where the light path from a very distant quasar is altered by an intervening galaxy in such a way that different photons take different paths with different distances on their trip to Earth. It uses only geometry and general relativity, though I admit saying only general relativity doesn't sound that simple, but it is. The value the researchers find for their expansion of the universe agrees with the value determined using Cepheid stars and supernova. That's great. However, it is significantly higher than the value measured with the Planck satellite, which measured the expansion rate for the much more distant, very early universe by observing the cosmic microwave background. Now, to add more mystery to the results, the Planck measurements are consistent with the primary theoretical models of the universe, whereas the new measurements, as well as those using Cepheid stars, are not as consistent with those models. This disagreement might point to some as-of-yet-unknown property of the expansion of the universe between the earliest and most recent epochs of its life. This research was presented in a series of papers to appear in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. For many years, science fiction writers have envisioned human life extension by replacing worn-out organs with new healthy ones. In fact, researchers are bringing that vision closer to reality in labs. Bladders have been replaced, for example, but they're relatively simple and are not typically rejected by the human body. The big vision may become a reality before long, but the new organs may come from pigs. An international team of scientists has injected pig embryos with human stem cells. Those are the cells typical of embryos that can produce many different types of cells. The pig embryos developed organs containing human cells. These human pig chimeras, as they're called, were not allowed to develop past the fetal stage. But the experiment suggests that mixed species embryos could eventually be used to grow fully human organs for transplant. Human pig chimeras could also be used for research into prenatal development and to test experimental drugs. 
For example, a human lung, lung in a pig might show more accurately the effect of a compound intended to treat, say, cystic fibrosis, than today's lab animals. Bioethicists have raised concerns that interspecies chimeras could yield an animal that could develop enough human brain cells to think and feel like a person inside a pig's body. The National Institutes of Health has actually banned such experiments. The human-pig chimeras reported recently were made in Spain with private funding, although some scientists who developed the technique work at the Salk Institute in San Diego. That study was published last week in the journal Cell. People take antibiotics hoping to keep microbes from making them sick. But new research from the University of Exeter indicates that if antibiotics don't kill a bug immediately, they are like fertilizer for creating a superbug. Specifically, the Exeter scientists studied E. coli. Now, many strains of E. coli are harmless, but one strain that can lurk in uncooked foods leads to stomach cramps, severe diarrhea, and sometimes even kidney failure. Using this virulent E. coli, the scientists watched what happened when they tried to kill it with a mildly strong antibiotic. They used eight different rounds of the antibiotic over four days and created a superbug resistant to the antibiotic. In this age of antibiotic resistance, the superbug creation was not really news. What was surprising is that the superbug reproduced faster and created much larger colonies much more quickly than the E. coli that had never been exposed to the antibiotics. To make an alarming story even worse, the faster-growing superbug E. coli colonies retained their new skills for antibiotic resistance after several generations where the uberbug E. coli was no longer exposed to the antibiotics. Their ability to resist the antibiotics didn't go away. All this, according to the Exeter scientists, is a sober reminder of why it's important to be sure that the right antibiotic is used on patients as soon as possible, and also a reminder that when antibiotics are not really necessary, don't use them. Last week, the world lost one of its greatest evangelists for energy efficiency. Arthur Rosenfeld passed away of natural causes at his home in Berkeley, California, at the age of 90. Dr. Rosenfeld began his career as a nuclear physicist, having studied under Enrico Fermi, the creator of the first nuclear reactor. But in 1973, the energy crisis prompted a major pivot as he shifted his immense intellect toward energy efficiency. That transition began when Rosenfeld was annoyed at his Lawrence Berkeley National Lab colleagues for leaving the lights on, so he personally turned them all off. But he didn't stop there. His efforts, ultimately as the head of California Energy Commission, led to the development of the compact fluorescent light bulbs, energy-efficient refrigerators, which many of us have, and energy-saving reflective rooftops. Governor Jerry Brown told the Los Angeles Times in 2010 this of Dr. Rosenfeld. He gave validation to the very unorthodox notion that economic growth could be decoupled from energy growth. He was really the guru of energy efficiency. Electrical utilities, PG&E specifically, and appliance manufacturers fought Dr. Rosenfeld tooth and nail but he succeeded in keeping California's per capita energy use flat since 1973, while energy usage by the rest of the country shot up by 50% in the same period. On the science calendar this week, tonight, Boulder-based journalist and author 
Scott Carney will give a talk at Boulder Bookstore about his new book called What Doesn't Kill Us. Extreme athletes, crossfitters, and people working all day at a desk may relate. In the book, Carney takes a personal journey and lives to tell about it into the science of human performance, all while evolving from an ordinary desk job guy to an extreme endurance athlete. He shares how he pushed his body and mind to the edge of human endurance. In his book, What Doesn't Kill Us, Carney investigates the fundamental philosophy at the root of a movement, one that lures millions of people every year to forego traditional gyms and do boot camp style workouts in seemingly raw, extreme conditions. Carney's talk will start at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore on the Pearl Street Mall. Also on the science calendar, though with a still unspecified date, thousands of scientists around the country, perhaps inspired by the massive women's marches on January 21st, are planning to hold a March for Science. What's become a movement began just last week as a discussion on Reddit. Now, a Science March DC Twitter account already has more than 296,000 followers. The movement, and an eventual March for Science, comes in response to President Donald Trump's and several of the administration's seemingly anti-science actions. These include his nominations for heads of Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, and the State Department, as well as his silencing of employees at federal agencies, and his freezing of grants, particularly related to climate change research. Organizers of the march will meet soon to hash out a mission statement and march details. For information, go to marchforscience.com and how on earth we'll keep you posted. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Post-traumatic stress disorder is an anxiety disorder that affects up to 1 in 12 people in the United States in their lifetime. And it's at least as common in some other countries. PTSD is a serious and costly public health problem. It can develop after someone is exposed to a terrifying event or ordeal in which there is the threat of or an actual grave physical harm, such as a violent personal attack or a bomb. Treatments, ranging from psychotherapy to several anti-anxiety drugs, have had varying effect. In 2013, the Federal Drug Administration approved four clinical trials testing whether MDMA, the illegal feel-good drug known as ecstasy or molly, could treat PTSD. The trials have proved promising so far, enough to lead the FDA more recently to approve larger-scale clinical trials. If they are successful, the drug could become available in a few years, as early as 2021, I think, as a medically prescribed treatment. One of the trial hubs is Colorado, and two investigators of the trial are here with us in the studio. They are Marcela Utalora and Bruce Poulter. 
Marcela is a licensed psychotherapist, and Bruce is a registered nurse and a rolfer with a master's degree in public health. Marcela and Bruce, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I wanted to start with just an overview and a very personal view of PTSD and what it looks like, how it manifests in the body and in the mind before we get into the trial itself. So Marcela? Okay. Um, so PTSD is, is kind of like being locked up with a traumatic event or events where your, all your perspective of the way you see life is from that caged place of that trauma. So it's very difficult to learn new things, to be curious, and you're in constant fear of either having the memories of the event or trying to block them and avoid them. So your whole life um, revolves around it. And you have worked with several patients as a psychotherapist even well before this trial yes. who have suffered from PTSD. Yes, right? I mostly work mm -hmm. with PTSD patients. And Bruce Poulter, you as well have worked with patients even before the clinical trial, or you sort of jumped in with this clinical Mostly trial? Mostly jumped in with the clinical trial, mm -hmm. yes. And maybe a little more on some of the stats. Some of them are super alarming about those. I mentioned one in 12. I think that's just in the U.S. And mm -hmm. how, sort of what do the numbers look like, and how does it differ say with vets as opposed to others? Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., the generally agreed upon figure is 8% of the population. So that's 24 million people. And that's at any given time. At any given time, mm -hmm. that's correct. And then when you look at vets, one of the, you know, from our ongoing uh, skirmishes in the world, um, the most inclusive number for a number of people who will develop PTSD as a result of being in war is uh, three quarters of a million. So that's, so the majority of PTSD is actually domestic, you know, civilian related issues, um, you know, assaults between people who know each other, um, family violence, um, accidents, injuries. So in part how PTSD has become more accepted within society is actually through, you know, our experiences with war. More accepted meaning destigmatized. Exactly. Uh -huh. exactly. Not normalized. No. Yeah. Correct. Uh -huh. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and actually then more compassion, you know, that people are not, as you said, not stigmatized. They're actually, mar they're not being marginalized. They're actually being seen as this is what happens when people are exposed to the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And worst case scenario is suicide, right? Talk about that yes. among vets and sort of general population, if you distinguish mm -hmm. yeah. that way. So mm -hmm. with vets right now, um, we have that it's between 20 and 22 vets take their own life every day. Every day. Every day. And so more vets die from suicide than they do in combat. And so if that's 22 a day, what does it look like for the general population? You know those? Sort of a higher rate anyway. Yes, it's bad. Yes. It, yeah. it, it's definitely, mm -hmm. um, you know, an option that people take because it is so difficult to mm -hmm. deal with. And you as a psychotherapist and one who's been involved well before this trial, talk some about the different kinds of treatments and, you know, not too granular, but to what effect they have been 
um, effective or not. Mm -hmm. And that sort of brings us to then why this trial. Right. So um, there are treatments that are effective and, and that people have gotten help from. And it's between like 50, 65 percent of people get better from the existing treatments. And so that still leaves a big percentage of people that uh, have not found relief from those treatments. So EMDR is one of them, exposure therapy. Cognitive Talk about behavior. EMDR. What does that stand for? Uh, eye movement desensitization. And that's where you do a little... Right, yes. that you go from eye, eye to eye, and, you, and then you go back to the feeling of the different events or the different trauma. So mm -hmm. it has been very successful for some people. Um, and for, the cr for treatment resistant, it's usually people who have what we call complex PTSD. So it wasn't just one event. It was something that happened over a period of time, multiple times, childhood abuse, childhood um, sexual, sexual abuse, and combat. Mm -hmm. And that tends to make the existing treatments that much less likely to have a lasting effect when there's that cumulative? Yes, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a little bit harder. And um, so in terms of that, that people can, you know, that the people that do get better, they also, sometimes it's not lasting. So um, there's still an, a lot of people who are not getting help, who are uh, suffering with PTSD, who have had, um, who have tried lots of different things. So in our study, we have uh, people who have had trauma for an average of 17 years that they have been suffering with PTSD and have tried multiple uh, you know, multiple methods um, from uh, pharmaceuticals to different, you mm -hmm. know, talk therapy to different other, you know, equine therapy. I mean, they tried everything. Um, we've had people who have had over a thousand psychotherapy sessions before they came to the trial. Well, and, and so to the trial itself, what, so what prompted there to be sort of ecstasy, Molly, medically, MDMA as the key treatment? Because I know that's been super controversial, although it does have a history with psychotherapy, I think going back to the 50s or 60s, right? Yeah, let me just clarify Bruce, one Bruce thing. Bruce Poulter. <coughs> so MDMA is not ecstasy. So that's the first thing we need to get clear about, because what is sold on the street as ecstasy is generally anything but so um, because it's laced with so many other things yes correct mm -hmm. and um and so that makes it very very difficult to know what you're actually getting on the street and so when there's a an issue in the news about somebody saying that they had a reaction to um mdma or ecstasy the reality is we actually don't know what was in that because our the drugs that are sold on the street are doc doctored with all kinds of things so so um, could you overdose from mdma not likely, not likely, mm -hmm. um, and um, but your question though was get us back to the question here. Well, wh so what what brought this MDMA-based oh, yes. trial, so where it's psychotherapy and MDMA, yeah. as opposed to well, we'll get Thank into later, you. like marijuana or right. other yes. substances. So MDMA was legal up until 1985, and so. Legal for medical use. Legal. It was Period. just, it was mm -hmm. un, unregulated, mm -hmm. completely unregulated. Unregulated. 
And so what they had realized sometime beginning in the in the 70s with uh, Alexander Shulgin is that the um, that it seemed to be helpful for people with this thing you know related to trauma that they didn't particularly call PTSD back then and so anecdotally we kept getting these reports about mm -hmm. it being helpful in that setting with these people with these issues and so it's basically it came from that awareness Sort of percolating up from yes. a lot of clinical practice. Yes, showing exactly. that this was more effective than a lot of other things. Yeah, and there, there's, you know, like, again, anecdotal reports about prior to it being made illegal, you know, there were 100,000 doses given in, in therapists and psychiatrists' offices. And, and then once it became illegal, then it went underground, and the reports continued about it being helpful. So it's, it's really responding to that and saying, well, okay, so if that's true, who is it true for? What are the risks? And does it actually really work when we do apply science to the this inquiry? And on that note, we'll continue, but I want to take a little break. For those who joined us late, I'm talking with Marcela Otalero and Bruce Poulter about clinical trials that have been exploring how the drug MDMA can help people suffering from PTSD. You're listening to KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. So yeah, let's jump right into this trial. When did you start and what's been your role? How about start with um, Marcela? Um, my role is the principal investigator and I am one of the therapists also in the study. We started in uh, 2013 mm -hmm. And um, we didn't know how we were going to recruit necessarily, but we didn't even have um, have an opportunity to even think about it because we had so many people in the waiting list already. We had like 150 people in the waiting list. And they come through the Veterans Administration? Like there's another current trial happening in Denver in conjunction with the VA, but was this no. more through word of mouth? Word or? of mouth. Uh, some people heard it from MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is our sponsor, who sponsors all these studies. And this just break a little bit, this is the nonprofit based in Santa Cruz, California, yes. that promotes and researches a lot of psychedelic and marijuana Yes. Based drugs yes. as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, for treatment. Again, but trying to do the basic science. What are the, mm -hmm. What's the safety? What, what, what were they effective for? What are the risks? So we can be very clear. And um, so we started treating people in uh, two, uh, 2013. Uh, originally, we thought we could only do 12 because we didn't have enough funds, but um, we raised the funds, especially Colorado people. It helped with that. Thank and, you. <laughs> um, and we ended up treating 28. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started that process. In 2013, and basically the, the therapy component of it ended a few months ago? That we have, uh, tomorrow, we have the last one-year follow-up. How timely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and since we just have a couple more minutes left, what mm -hmm. would have been the preliminary results that you've come up with, Bruce Poulter? So 20 out of 26 participants, re what we call remitted or recovered from PTSD. So that's, what, 77%. Mm-hmm. Um, of the so then that leaves six we have to look at so s three of them their um, their scores in terms of the clinician administered PTSD scale which is the gold standard for PTSD rating theirs their score stayed identical throughout the study 
and then the other three had at least a 30% improvement in their in their CAP scores. And just to flush out a bit, the yeah. treatment <coughs> was psychotherapy with what three administrations of MDMA? Yes, three, three over um, over a period of uh, three to six months, mm -hmm. and we stay. We don't give them MDMA and send them home. We stay <laughs> with them the entire time. So we stay with them for eight hours when they take MDMA, and we do psychotherapy then and in between. And so about seventy percent of those have had lasting effects or by the end of the trial it showed they were in so 77 percent mm -hmm. at their one-year follow-up no longer met criteria for ptsd mm -hmm. and so since unfortunately we're almost out of time but what is the what's the next step and then what's your what's your hope so Marcella? our next step is uh to do phase three and phase three is multiple sites, so we hope to have uh, 10 to 12 sites around the United States and a couple in other countries, and to see, to continue the research for safety and efficacy. And um, if it continues the way it's going, we hope that um, MDMA will become a prescription medication for PTSD in 2021, is our hope. And Bruce Poulter, how about for you? Yes, and so we are really interested in who it doesn't work for as well as who it does work for and really getting clear about what are the side effects and risks. And so far, they are very minimal. Fascinating. Well, we'd love to have you on the show sometime during the phase three trials. So thank you so much, Bruce Poulter, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. And Marcela Otalara. Thank you so much. Hope to have you again. That was uh, Marcela Otalara and Bruce Poulter discussing the ongoing or clinical trial testing the efficacy of current, currently illegal feel-good drug MDMA, also known in its bastardized or diluted form as, as ecstasy, for those suffering from PTSD. all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer and today's engineer is yours truly, Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, and Tom McKinnon. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Michael Brecker. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>